you join me in a word of prayer, please? Lord, we, we want to come today humble before you and ask that your word would be used by you, Lord, to penetrate our hearts this morning. We see ourselves in Jonah so much. And Lord, especially today, I ask, Lord, that as your messenger, that you would simply speak through me. And Lord, whatever that you have been doing in my life, Lord, that would be helpful or pertinent, Lord, would would come out in such a way to make this passage ring true to the hearts of those who are here. Lord, we desperately need you. And this morning, Lord, I ask that our hearts would be humble to receive your truth, that we would be honest, that we would listen to what you have to say and learn, Lord, about your goodness and grace, your patience, your mercy, your compassion. And Lord, how we fall so far short of so many of those things. So Lord, just reveal your truth to us this morning, we ask in your name. Amen. Past number of weeks, our newspapers and TV news stations have been talking a lot about weather. Um, And it's almost as if our whole eastern side of the United States has kind of reprogrammed, so to speak, based on weather. And it's affected their lives and it's changed what they've done. And to see flooding in New York was kind of an unusual thing, wasn't it? But um, they received the full brunt of a hurricane that went through and And then even over the past couple of weeks here in this area, we've had some minor earthquakes going on, and you're just kind of wondering, you know, what's happening? There's a lot of stuff that's taking place. And, you know, God uses those things many times to get us to a place where we're stripped of all those things that we might think are important to us, and we might just look at our own survival and be happy that we have family and that we're safe and that we're healthy. And um, those are actually devastating things, but they're also good things if we have a right perspective about them. In this story of Jonah, we have seen Jonah go through a lot of different trials, right? We've seen God bless him. And we've gone through and we've talked about um, things that are great, because this book talks about great things. And the first thing um, we want to see here is that there was a great storm. That was chapter one, right? great storm that God brought, and God brought it for a reason, because Jonah would not be obedient to God. He tried to get away from his responsibility by going to Tarshish, getting on the boat, and all that. Then in chapter 2, we find uh, Jonah being swallowed by a fish, and in the middle of that, that fish, in his belly, we find him praying to God. But that passage also talks there about a great fish that God used to accomplish his purpose, to to, to fashion and to affect Jonah with his, his heart and where he needed to be. And Jonah ultimately comes before God and is repentant. Then in chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh, to that great city, and he brings the message of judgment. And when he brings that message of judgment, it's almost immediately the people begin to respond. And they begin to to cry out to God. They begin to cover themselves with ashes and sackcloth and they humble themselves and ultimately the king does the same thing and he makes a proclamation and commands everyone to be doing that and even the animals are now having a fast and uh, are part of this this public citywide appeal to God for mercy. That's really a great picture of, of repentance and we looked at that last week. And then we look at some of the characters here because God's mercy has been shown to Jonah because God's been patient with him. God didn't didn't have to give him a second opportunity, remember? Remember last week we were very, very careful and specific to say that God doesn't always give a second chance. He does give second chances, but you can't count on that second chance. The fact that you're breathing is the opportunity to rejoice that you do have a second chance, that you have second, third, fourth, 120th chances, right? He was merciful to Jonah. He was also merciful to the sailors. 
the sailors didn't know what to do. They didn't know what was going on. They tried praying to their own gods. Finally, as things developed and through God's providence, it was clear that Jonah was the issue. But at the beginning of the story, they're praying to their own gods. At the end of chapter 1, they are worshiping the God of Israel. That's God's mercy. It's God's mercy on them. And then we have the people of Nineveh, the people and the king, the recipients of God's mercy. They deserved judgment, and ultimately their judgment has been postponed. And judgment on the Ninevites will actually take place uh, a while later. Nahum prophesies that, and it actually takes place. Their judgment has been postponed for a season by virtue of their repentance, and God's mercy was extended toward them. Now the question is this, how does Jonah respond to all that took place in Nineveh? That was what God had called him to do, to go to Nineveh and to preach this message. How does he respond to their, from our perspective, positive response to that message of judgment? And what we have here is what I've been calling a great pity. A great pity. Now, see, I get this from the last part of this, this book, of chapter 4 in particular, where it talks about he had pity over the plant, right? And then ultimately we see that it's God that has pity over Nineveh. And so today, as we take time through chapter 4, I would like us to look at this in, in, in two sections. The first section uh, really has to do with Jonah, and I'm calling this a prophet of God with a pitiful attitude, Okay? Because that's really true. He is the prophet of God, yet his attitude is incredibly pitiful. And ultimately, when we get to um, the second section, we're going to find a patient God with an attitude of pity. And both of these are, are, are in contrast to each other. And we're seeing ourselves here, not in God. We're seeing ourselves in Jonah. And, and if, you, if you begin to think that you are above Jonah, think again. Because there's so many realities about Jonah and how he responds that we can connect to. In fact, this week, um, one of the statements from this particular text I've been thinking about and thinking about, and it's that whole section that talks about, I knew that you would do what you said you would do. Because I have said that over the course of the past couple of years. I knew that this is how things would turn out. And I could get very bitter because I knew and yet, I've got to be careful because God is the one in whom salvation, or to whom salvation belongs, and he is sovereign, and he can do as he pleases, and he is the one that determines whether mercy should be extended to people who are deserving or undeserving. And the reality is, is there anyone deserving? Absolutely not. So who do I think I am? All right? There is the story of Jonah. I mean, there is chapter 4 for us, but let's jump in now to a prophet of God with a pitiful attitude. We should go back to Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, go to Jonah 3 and verse 10, where it says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. How does Jonah respond? Verse 1 of chapter 4, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, if you read the word, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It's kind of, it's kind of, it has kind of a soft ring to it. What's going on here is this. In the Hebrew, this is the most angry that you can be. This is extreme anger. Literally, it says this. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned to him. He was furious. He was raving over what was taking place. He is so angry right now because of what the people were doing and their response to the message of judgment. Now it's the same expression that is used to describe God's anger burning against the evil of Nineveh. Isn't that interesting? So why was Jonah so angry? Is it that he is narrow-minded in his love for his nation? 
exclusive uh, you know, uh, attitude toward Israel? Is it that he knew that the Assyrians now, because they had repented, now that they are the recipients of God's mercy and his favor, that they now would be a tool to be used against Israel? That's possible. Is it maybe his personal reputation has been tarnished now? Because he was a prophet for Israel, but now he's gone to Nineveh and he's brought salvation to them, or he's brought you know, a message of blessing to them and God's mercy has been poured out on them. How dare you, Jonah, go to a Gentile group of people and help them and be used to encourage them. Those are all possibilities, but the reality is, friends, we're not told. So those conclusions are conclusions that we may come up with, but we're not told specifically in the text. But here is what we do know, and that is that uh, he, is, he is angry, and his anger is not against the Ninevites. His anger is against God. He is angry at God. He is furious with God. And here is the irony. God's anger has been turned away from Nineveh, but Jonah's anger has been unleashed, and in particular unleashed, against God. He is in diametric opposition to God. He is not simply pouting. He is enraged. Now, just, just think about those times when you have been the most angry, okay, like this morning or yesterday, or, and just how you behaved and the things that came out of your mouth and the, the, the facial expressions that you had, and you know what I'm talking about, right? No, don't remind you, all right? That's where Jonah is, and even notch it up some. He is so fuming angry. He's basically saying this, God, I do not like you. I do not like what you do, and I do not like how you do it. I do not like you, God. He'd failed to recognize God's sovereign plan. All he had in his mind is what he wanted to take place, but that isn't what's taking place. In fact, what God is doing is not what he would do, and therefore he thinks God is wrong for doing it, and he doesn't like it. And we can find ourselves just as angry and just as furious against God as Jonah is here. Now, we are less likely to let people know about it. Or maybe at least outside the walls of our house. We may be saying in the privacy of our hearts, God, I am angry with you, I don't like you, and I don't like how you do things. Here are some thoughts. You might be saying, I'm angry with you for giving me these children so soon in my marriage. I'm angry with you for taking away my dream job for not allowing me to get into the school of my choice, for taking away my loved one from me, for allowing my child to wander in sin, for giving me so much stress on the job, for my ongoing health issues, for giving me a husband or a wife that doesn't seem to want to change, for giving me this messed up life that I'm now living in. I hate it and I'm angry at you, God. I hope you didn't check yes on all of those things. I was just, that was just kind of a litmus test just to maybe catch a few of you. But guys, this is, we can so easily be angry at God. And just like Jonah say, you know, I know you've called and you said you would do this and you wanted me to do this, but I don't like it. I don't like you. I don't like what you want me to do. I don't like the way you do things. So his anger then leads to, secondly, complaining. You relate to this guy? <laughs> Come on, still work. There you go. It leads to complaining. 
Let's look at verse 2 and following. Even in this furious state of mind, surprisingly, what does Jonah do? He at least goes to God in prayer, we could say, right? Let's read verse 2 and following. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? You know, I told you this is how it was going to turn out, right? That would be how we would say it. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's like, wow. This is like, how can you be saying all of those things in one big, long sentence? This is who you are, God, now take my life. Well, Jonah is quoting Moses in Exodus chapter 34 in verses 6 and 7. You may want to turn there. I'm not going to necessarily read except for the passage as it is there in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. But what you need to know is that this passage takes place after a huge event in the life of the children of Israel. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He is gone for a long time. It's the time when God carves out his Ten Commandments on two tablets. While he is gone, he's gone for a long time. The people that are waiting for him get tired of waiting for him, ask Aaron to lead this time of worship, and this time of worship is when they gathered all the gold they could find, they gathered it together, they melt it down, and they create a golden calf just like one of the idols they found or they used to have in Egypt. And they begin now to worship this golden calf and to attribute the success of their journey and anything that has been good in this journey to this golden calf. So their, their freedom from Egypt now is attributed to this golden calf that they have just created. Absolutely incredible story. Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. He hears the sound of Israel rejoicing and celebrating and there's a lot more other things going on there that aren't good. And when he comes in, what does he do? How does he respond? He throws something, right? He throws the tablets. That's a whole other story. And ultimately God is angry. And he says, listen, you are a stiff-necked people. I am still going to let you get into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And then the people cry out. They mourn. They weep. They realize the sinfulness of their sin. And Moses comes before God, and he stands there as an interceder for the nation, and God relents on what he had said. He ultimately says, okay, I will go with you. So this is all taking place here before we get to this passage. Okay? So when we read this passage, understand that what's being said here, he is saying about calf worshipers. Not faithful worshipers of Yahweh. He's saying to people who abandoned him and worshipped a calf instead. The Lord passed before him, talking about Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And what Jonah is, is quoting is the first part. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what we have here is really a creed. It, this, this statement, this, this account here becomes a creed for Israel through the years. All right? And I want you to notice how it's used. In Numbers 14 and Psalm 86, it is used as a basis for prayer. Okay? It's used as a basis for prayer. In Nehemiah 9 and Psalm 103 and 145, it is used really as the, as the, the ingredients for praise. 
they go back to this passage many times, Israel does, and they, they, they bring it up again, and they, they use it to, to encourage them in how they pray and how they come before God in praise. It is also used in Joel and in Second Chronicles as the, um, as the means by which they come to the place of repentance. These are all just wonderful ways that God's Word and, and the record of God's Word is being used in the life of Israel. But when we come to Jonah, Jonah is really not praying here. Jonah is really not praising God here. Jonah is not coming with a repentant heart here. Jonah is coming sarcastically and complaining to God. Now, there are three ways that he complains. And the first one I want you to see here is this sarcasm. It is a complaint that God is that way. That God actually is this, um, this God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know, God, I knew that you were all these things. You know, it's that attitude thing and it's a sarcasm thing. I knew that you were this. I knew that you were this. I knew that you were this. He's not saying it out of praise. He's certainly not going to God, God, you are this, and I adore you for it. And now I'm repenting. It's not that at all. He's using it as a basis for his complaining about who God is, what he is like, what he does, that he doesn't himself like about God. Oh, it's certainly okay if that is his attitude toward Israel. But it's not okay that's his attitude toward Nineveh. Citing this text shows us that Jonah is not deficient in his theology. He knows his theology, but he doesn't like where his theology leads him. You know, I showed to you a couple of resources talking about theology. Sometimes people avoid the whole discussion, avoid digging in and finding out about what it means to, to understand Calvinism or Arminianism and that kind of stuff because we, we just don't want to get to the place where our theology now is actually telling us how we're supposed to live. So we avoid it. But our theology does take us certain places. Now some would say, you know what, Jonah's problem is he doesn't need any more theology. He just needs to have a heart for people. Well, I would say no, that's not the issue here. It's not that Jonah needs to have a heart for people. It's that Jonah's theology, when it's understood the implications of that theology, he does not like. It's a huge difference. It was his orthodox doctrine that made him uneasy because of where it led. His good theology left him with an accurate understanding of the implications of those doctrines, and that disturbed him. So the problem is, that his theology hasn't reached his attitude, hasn't reached his heart. Not in the way that God wants our theology to reach us. And here, here's just a little side note, guys. Theology should always be trickle-down theology. All right? Theology is simply a word that we use to describe the things of God, in particular the teachings about the things of God, the, the teaching about the things of the Word of God, and those can be heady. Those can be all kind of up here in, in articulation and in theory and that kind of stuff. But friends, it, it does us no good if they just stay up there and they don't affect us in how we live and how we behave. And understanding who God is and understanding his attributes are all great and wonderful if they're up there and just left up there. But they need to come down and to affect our hearts and affect how we live. And that's what Jonah is struggling with because he's seeing, God, this is who you are. You are patient. You are gracious. You are merciful. But I don't like that about you because that mercy that is being extended to people that I don't want to extend it to. They are not deserving of you. As if Jonah is any more deserving. Now don't think so badly about Jonah you might actually think you're far more deserving than you really are. Okay? 
think we connect with Jonah here quite easily. Not only was there sarcasm, but secondly, I think what's going on here is what we'll call scripture twisting. As we read these, these words, we come face to face with this whole idea, this ancient reality of scripture twisting. There will always be people that twist scripture. Did you know that? And you can take God's word and you can finagle it and twist it and turn it and squeeze it and whatever and say a lot of things that are contrary to what God's word says. But people will believe you simply because you say, well, the Bible says it, you know, because you've twisted it. And you can prove a lot of things that are not true by, by adjusting passages of scripture, right? The, 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 the common example is, um, you know, the Bible says, you know, and, um, Judas went and hung himself, Right? Go thou and do likewise. All right, I mean, I mean, it's just, it, all right, you're just taking two obscure passages and putting them together and say, ah, see, God says. You know, but it's not, you know, we do that kind of stuff in other places. That's why it's so important for us to make sure that we study Scripture and we actually let it say what it says rather than try and finagle it and make it say what we want it to say. Because okay? you can make it say a lot of things. I like um, this quote by Elul. You don't know who he is, but commentator. Listen to what he says. It's, it's quite long, so, so hang with me here, but I think it's very, very helpful. This is a grave warning. It is not enough to lean on a biblical text to be right. It is not enough to adduce biblical arguments, whether theological or pietistic, to be in tune with God. All this may denote opposition to God. It may even be a way of disobeying him. The using of God's word to tempt God is a danger which threatens all Christians. Every time the Christian thinks he has God's word in store to be used as needed, he commits the sin, which is that of Satan himself against Christ. If you remember the, the temptation that Satan had with Christ, he used scripture with Christ to try and, well, he twisted it to try and get Christ to do what he wanted him to do. He goes on. This is the attitude of the historian who dissects Scripture to set it against Scripture. It is of the theologian who uses a text to construct this doctrine or philosophy, whatever that doctrine might be. He's using a piece of, you know, of God's Word, not as it actually is truly being said, but he uses it and twists it to prove his theological position is what he's talking about here. Or of the simple Christian, and he doesn't mean that as in dumb, he means that just as a, you know, as a normal Christian who opens his Bible to find himself justified there. Or to find arguments against non-Christians or against Christians who do not hold the same views. Arguments which show how far superior my position is to that of others. It is not for nothing the Bible shows us that this attitude of Jonah is that of Satan. This should stir us to the great caution in the reading and use of the Bible. It is not a neutral book which one can read and then take arguments from. It is an explosive power which must be handled with care. Now, the, the point here is this, guys. All right, You can take God's word, you can twist it, you can make it say a lot of different things, and ultimately you can do that not for God's glory but for self-glory and for selfish purposes. To prove your point to be right, you know, to create that theological position. and you, you can just go all sorts of different ways to justify your sin. People use Scripture to justify sin. Hey, we're all into grace. So God knows I'm going to sin, so hey, it's okay for me to do this, right? That's a complete twisting of God's understanding of grace. So you read that and you listen to that, you say, well, should I even open my Bible? I mean, it's touchy there, right? Listen to some, some other counsel here. This is um, James Montgomery Boyce. He says this, when we find ourselves reading the Bible to find verses and passages that justify our own behavior, we are wrong and in danger. Instead, when we read the Bible and find verses that expose our sin and thereby draw us increasingly closer to God, who will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, then we are on the right track and will find blessing. It's all about how you approach God's word. If you're approaching it to find satisfaction that what you're doing 
you know, is justified, then you're approaching it wrong because you're not going to be there to see the sin that God is exposing in your heart and the means by which you can get closer to God. So there is this whole dynamic of scripture twisting, and, and I, I really believe that Jonah not only is saying this in a sarcastic way, but he's also taking God's word and he's throwing it back at him. Okay? Saying, God, yeah, you're this. Right. And then the third thing is this, sulking. It tells us here, I want to die. I want to die. Why? Well, because God has not carried out his judgment. God didn't do what he said he's going to do. He made me, you know, he took me through all this hassle of getting on a ship and, you know, a storm coming and shipwreck and being swallowed by a fish and getting vomited by a fish. And then, then I have to march all the way to Nineveh. And when I get to Nineveh, I do what God asked me to do. And God isn't even going to judge them. He's going to be merciful. I'm going to go out and I'm going to sit outside the city. I'm going to sulking. All right. Now, Boyce also offers the following in answer to this question. What is wrong with Jonah? Just three things to kind of really just ponder in your mind. What's wrong with Jonah is he's, he's still not reconciled to the will of God. He's still fighting against God's purpose. He's still fighting against what God wants. Secondly, he had forgotten God's mercy. It's interesting, the text doesn't clearly say that, but certainly by behavior, and also the timeline here, you have to think, okay, in chapter 2, it seems like Jonah is repentant, he's vomited out, right, that whole prayer there, but there seems to be a time lag, because he has to make the journey, and by the time he gets to Nineveh, maybe he's forgotten about how merciful he is, you say, well, that's really bad of Jonah, how, how long does it take for you? to have a really great time with God, and then all of a sudden be consumed with your sin and satisfied in doing it. doesn't take you long at all. So it's very likely that he forgot God's mercy and his own selfish desires crept back in again. Third thing, he did not know God as well as he thought he did. Aha. <laughs> Sometimes that's the reality, is we think that we know God, but we really don't know God because we've, we've kind of pegged him. As I say, we put him in a box. God puts himself in certain boxes. And that's what we have in this passage. I am a gracious God. Is, God say, is he putting himself in a box? Absolutely. He's saying this is who I am. But sometimes we don't comprehend the implications of what that means. And here Jonah is saying, yeah, this is great, as long as it's for Israel, but not for Nineveh. I did not really know God like I needed to know God. So it really is a pitiful picture. And friends, we must be honest here. We are all like Jonah. There are things that God does that we just do not like. We have similar struggles and we look at the situations and we get angry and we complain. And if you're honest, you would say, yes, that's me. But now I want you to see that the story's not over with. I want you to see a patient God with an attitude of pity. Aren't you glad that we have a patient God? Um, and he has not a pitiful attitude, he has an attitude of pity. I mean, playing on that, you know, that colloquialism. But here what we find is that God asks some questions. And listen, God loves questions. Just, just listen as I rattle off some key questions from God's word. To Adam and Eve, he asks these questions. Where are you? <laughs> Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Hmm? Hmm is in the Hebrew, just so you know that, okay? It's just, it's there. All right? What is this that you've done? And each of those questions, you know, Adam and Eve are just trying to hide, right? To Cain, he says, where is your brother Abel? Um, you know. What have you done? To Saul, when Saul offered burnt offerings, something that was reserved for the priests, God says, what have you done, Saul? He knew exactly. To David, through the prophet Nathan, after he had committed adultery and murdered and lied, here's what Nathan says. 
why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? To Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, or Isaiah 6, it says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Jesus says to Judas, Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now see, it's exactly the same thing here in the book of Jonah. God is using these questions here to pierce the heart of Jonah. He's using these questions to confront him, his self-denial, his, his, sorry, his, his denial and his, his selfishness and his stubbornness and to expose what is in that particular heart. So he peels open the heart of Jonah with these three questions. And, but also notice here that God is not responding in kind to Jonah's um, anger. I mean, he is, he is spitting mad. And God doesn't come back to him and fire him back with words that are spitting mad. God comes to his mad, stubborn prophet with questions that are patient, that are gentle, that are fatherly. And you could even say this whole next section is a section or a demonstration of God's discipline on one of his children that is struggling with anger and anger at him. So the real miracle maybe in this story is that God still cares about Jonah, <laughs> right? So here are the questions. Do you, do you do well to be angry? Look at verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? It's interesting in verse 4 that he asked this question, and the next thing we read is Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and blah, blah, blah. Does Jonah respond? He does respond. It's just not a verbal response. I think between the lines here, you can find this statement. God, talk to the hand. Right? I am so angry with you. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to say anything. I'm just going to go and I'm going to sit. And sometimes that's how we are when we're so angry. I mean, even God is speaking to us. You're like, you know, I, I don't want to hear you right now. I don't like you. Right? Then look at verse 5. And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now understand, a booth being made was not an unusual thing, especially for someone who was a Hebrew because of the Feast of Booths. Every year they would do that. They would create these little booths, these coverings. So, you know, it's one of those things, being a Jew, you just knew how to make a booth. You knew how to take the twigs and cover them and weave them so that it would be somewhat secure. But remember, this is, this is Nineveh. This is very, very desert-like, Okay. Not lots of trees around, not lots of, you know, resources there to do. So he, he had some kind of a booth that he put together. Um, but there's really three errors, three mistakes that we find in this verse I think are very helpful and interesting for us here. Um, I just think through this. Remember, he's a prophet of God with a message of judgment. Behind a, ju a message of judgment, there's always the possibility of God's mercy if someone is repenting. And as a prophet, he would know that, and he should know that. And if you have a people that are repenting, what should a prophet be doing? Huh? Praising God, rejoicing, but on a more practical level. Let's turn it this way. Let's just say I had someone in this church today come and say, Pastor Rod, I, just, I know that today I, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that he came and he grabbed me and he brought me into his family. And, you know, and I would just say, oh, okay, it's fine. Good. Have a good week. Is, is that how you would expect me to respond? How would you expect me to respond? Hey, you know what? We need to get together. We need to talk about this. I need to help you out to, so that you understand what it is that you're doing here and to make sure to, to help you know the next steps and so on and so forth, right? Here's the prophet of God. A whole city is converted. A whole city is repenting. A whole city is responding. And what does he do? He marches off into the desert. Calvin, John Calvin, in Geneva. The gospel started to expand in Geneva. And what does Calvin do? He says, I'm staying. 
And he stayed in that city, started ministry, began to preach the word of God and preach the word of God. This is not what Jonah is doing. He is not interested in further developing the relationship of the Ninevites with God. So he gives up. Seems kind of strange, really, when you think about it, right? Secondly, he built a shelter for himself. Why? Wasn't there some place in the city he could have stayed? I mean, he probably already knew, because he says, I knew this is what you were going to do, so why didn't he stay in the city? If he really knew what God was going to do, why would he be fearful that God was going to actually judge the city and he was going to be there? Just some thinking, right? He could have stayed in the city. He could have found a place to stay in the city, but no, he has to go out and he has to build a booth. One commentator said this. I thought it was pretty interesting or funny. Jonah was launching a little separatist movement in which he established his own independent church or denomination, all because he disliked the Assyrians. And how so much like us that really is. We don't like what you're doing, God. We don't like that pit of theology. We don't like this. So we're going to set up our own little separatist group with those that do. The third thing here is that he became a spectator rather than a servant or a participant in his role This is what happens. Remember in chapter 1, he, he abandoned his responsibility? There's really a sense here that he's doing the same thing. God, I'll do what you want me to do. I've done it. I went and I gave that message of judgment. My job is done. Really? Is that your role as a prophet? No, your role as a prophet goes beyond that. Do you do well to be angry? Absolutely not, but there was no verbal response. There was a response, though, by his actions. Secondly, let's continue on at verse 6 now. And here we have God now continuing to put on his, his, his fatherly discipline hat. And we find here he's appointing three, um, three objects, three activities. There's a plant, there's a worm, there's wind, right? Sovereign God does this throughout this book. He appoints a storm. He appoints a fish. Um, here, a plant, a worm, and a wind. Let's just take a little bit of time just to jump in here. Verse 6 says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might, not be, or that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now I just want to share this with you. In my readings, what I came across was the fact that Jerome, one of the early church fathers, had a difference of opinion as to what this plant was. Traditionally, it's been considered a gourd. He discerned and determined that it wasn't a gourd, but it was actually a castor oil uh, plant. That resulted in a riot in one of the cities because he was actually coming to a different conclusion as to what the plant was. Now, what does it say here in our text? A plant. The Hebrew word is still fuzzy in general. But it is an example, at least for us guys, and it's worth us noting that we can get our arms up against certain things or for certain things that really are not significant even to the story. The issue isn't what kind of plant it is. The issue is what? It's a plant. It's a vine, right? So be careful what you're arguing about. Be careful what hill you're going to die on, okay? Or what desert you're, all right? You get the point there, right? There's a plant. God appointed it. And Jonah is what? He's exceedingly glad for the plant. Oh, I got a plant. I got a plant. I got a plant. This is great. I got a plant. All right, it's, it's the complete opposite of I am so angry. And here he is over a plant. Joyfully, this is so great. I got a plant. Hey, guys, come over here and see my plant. Oh, there's no one around. But anyway, I just I got a plant. It's kind of like the preacher that got a hole in one on a Sunday morning. He can't tell anyone about it, you know. It's just one of those things. Yeah. Got a hole in one, but no one can know about it. Right. I got a plant. That'll settle in after a while. 
Then God appointed a worm. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Now, to help us visualize this, the worm is not eating the whole plant, okay? There is a particular caterpillar, apparently, that this could be, and all it would do is nibble at the stem, and nibbling at the stem would then kill the plant, okay? Because I'm you know, trying to wrap my hands around it. That would be an awfully big worm, okay, by the time he's done. The point is he's just eating it enough that all of a sudden, I mean, really, really fast, this plant withers. Then there's the wind. When the sun rose, God appointed the scorching wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. So here's this wind. Now, just, just note this. There's these three things, the plant, the worm, and the wind. All of them are appointed by God. That tells us that God is deliberately doing something here, right? I mean, the narrator, the person who's writing this, and it could very well be Jonah, is letting us know that God is specifically trying to accomplish something with these, this plant, this worm, this wind, all right? And something about this wind, this is called a shirako, and this is when the temperature um, rises really, really fast, and the humidity drops really, really fast, and it's like, you know, it's you know, 110, 120, something pretty hot. And the wind is blowing, and it has these little minute grains of sand. All makes for a wonderful day. Just go and experience your own shirako, okay? Just a great thing. Now, it says here, it was a scorching east wind and the, the sun beat down, literally striking down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And that's the same expression that is used in chapter 2, verse 7 about his life ebbing away when he was in the fish. So here's Jonah, and he is now at an all-time physical, emotional, spiritual low. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I like that plant. You gave me that plant. That plant was, was your mercy on me when I was sitting out here and this booth wasn't that great and the sun was shining and I'm watching the city waiting for you to do your thing and you gave me this plant. It was great. And now you've taken it away. I'd rather die. Now, it's interesting, and there's, there's kind of a play going on here. We get angry at big things, but quickly we become angry at petty things. What's the big thing, Nineveh? What's the petty thing? Plant. So we, we get angry at God. Then we get angry at our circumstances. Then we get angry at, at you know, the person who's driving in front of us. And then we get angry at the fact that the light turns red. Or we get angry when we get home and we can't find our keys. Or then we get angry because the door won't open. Or the coffee is warm. Or there's no equal. I mean, there's some things in this world that are just awful. But it all starts maybe big, but it begins to flesh out in the little things, right? You say, oh, Jonah, how could you get so angry at this? Because you get angry at some of the things. Now, do you, get, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Of course, the answer is no. God is saying, Jonah, look where your anger has taken you. Is this right? Is this how you want to live? Do you want to spend the rest of your, diet, your, your life just consumed with such empty pettiness? Now, there's a final question here, and it's found in verses 10 and following. But God is, get this, God is ministering to Jonah right now. <laughs> Jonah doesn't like it. You know, we, we want, God, if you're going to discipline me, may it, Maybe good discipline, please. 
But that isn't always what we need. Especially when we are angry at him. Now, notice verse 10. Here's the last question. Should I not pity Nineveh? And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? You pity, and the word pity here has the idea of of weeping of the eye, that has this idea of great compassion. Some translations use the expression compassion. But Jonah, you had no involvement in this. You didn't create this plant. You didn't destroy this plant. You were not involved. You were not invested in this. That was my doing. That was what I was doing because I am God. And you are not. Now the argument here is the argument from the lesser to the greater. And Jesus does this. You, just, you hear this. The birds of the air, he feeds them. Are you not of more value than them? The lilies of the field clothe them. Will he not much more clothe you? In other words, What's really more valuable to God? A plant or Nineveh? To Jonah, the plant. To God, Nineveh. Who's right? Well, we say it's God. Take your own little petty thing and put it in there. Who's got the right perspective? My life. No, God does. And Jonah needs to understand here, not only does salvation belong to the Lord, but God's mercy belongs to the Lord. And when he calls us to obedience, he calls us to obedience because he is perfect God. And he has a purpose to work through us for his glory. And when you buck at that, you're bucking against God and when you're angry at the circumstances or the life that you have or what he has done, you're ultimately angry at God. And we have a problem then. Now here's the big picture. God is saying to Jonah through all this, yes, I love Israel, but I love all people. Now, remember, in the genealogy of Christ, there are two Gentiles, Rahab. Anyone remember the other one? Ruth. It was the Magi that came to see Christ. It was Simeon whom they went to see once he was born. In Acts chapter 2, the gospel went to the Gentiles. Then there's the Ethiopian in Acts chapter was at 8. Ultimately, there's the church that spread around, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. God cares about Israel, but he also cares for everyone. Now, there was an attitude that was present. The attitude of Israel was a very exclusive attitude. They had gotten ingrained. In fact, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. and We're going to finish up with our time here in Luke chapter 4. They had gotten to this place where their attitude was ingrained in themselves and not in God and his purposes. They were very selfish about, about God's purposes, specifically to Israel, but not to the Gentile world. So Luke chapter 4 and verse 16 and following. Now get this. Get the story. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, this is Jesus, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
and recovering of sight to the blind to set the, at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Still in Luke chapter 4, now in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now they loved when he read scripture. That's great, sure. He's one of our homeboys. He's one of the guys from our, our town. He's grown up here. We've seen him. That's great. And all spoke well of him, verse 22, and marveled at the gracious words which were, that were coming from his mouth. Oh boy, Jesus is really an up-and-coming guy. I mean, hey, you know what? He has a handle of God's word, and this is really good. And they said, is this or is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And this is where it gets fun. Verse 24. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So he's saying, Elijah was sent where? To the Gentiles. To, and he's speaking now to Israel, to the Pharisees, who are very exclusive in their own, okay? Um... As we continue on, verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So you have a Sidonian and you have a Syrian whom God graciously took care of, but did not take care of those who were a part of Israel. <laughs> when they all heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down to the cliff. Oh, this Jesus, he's one of us. Isn't it great? He's, he's an up-and-coming young man. Until he mentions the fact that God blesses the Gentiles. See, there's a sense in which even our attitude can be, there is a group of people who do not deserve your mercy, God. That's how Israel had become with Jonah in his time, as well as during Christ's time, where God's compassion was too large. And for us, it's a reminder that God's compassion we cannot comprehend and has been given for everyone. And the gospel has gone forth. And God is in the business of drawing not only Jews to himself, but also Gentiles to himself. And we must be, we should never find ourselves in the place where we're saying, oh, that person, we don't want to talk to them about God. <laughs> Listen, everyone, everyone is the object of God's favor in the sense that they are the people who, to whom we should preach the good news of the gospel. We don't make that decision because salvation belongs to the Lord and God's mercy belongs to the Lord too. Lord, help us today as we consider these things. Lord, we, we are humble to recognize, Lord, that we struggle with being angry at you. And that may be hard for us to hear. Although that may be hard for us to hear when we've been walking in our walk with you for a long time, but there may be some areas in our lives, Lord, that we are just angry with you about. And I ask, Lord, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to root that anger out. And, Lord, to replace it with a a confident and settled assurance that we deserve nothing and that we are only the recipients of your mercy. And whatever trial or difficulty or struggle that is before us, Lord, is there 
because you have so ordered it for your purposes. Lord, you have appointed it using the language of this book. And if that is the case, Lord, may we face it with your strength and with a perspective that you are a sovereign God who is good and who is at work accomplishing your purposes in our lives and through our lives. And Lord, may we come running to you, the ever-patient, loving God who wants to restore us.